As Brian mentioned earlier in the service, we are opening a brand new series of messages this morning through the Gospel of Mark entitled, Our Servant King. And so for the next, uh, probably close to nine to ten months, we're going to be working through Mark's Gospel with some breaks in there. Okay, we'll change it up a little bit for Advent, Easter, Christmas, those kinds of things. Um, but but uh, we're going to be, our steady diet is going to be working through this Gospel together understanding who Jesus is. So if you've got a Bible, that's where we're going to start off this morning. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. We'll read down through verse 15 together this morning. If you don't have it with you, you can follow it on the screen. It'll be up here as we read together. Beginning in Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, we read this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. And he was with wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now since we're going to be spending a significant amount of time in Mark's gospel, I want to give you just a little bit of a flyover, some things to understand at the outset, a little introduction about Mark's gospel. First of all, most scholars today and most in the ancient church believe that Mark's gospel was written by a guy by the name of John Mark. John Mark was a traveling companion of Paul on some of his missionary journeys, spent significant time with Peter as well, and many, most believe in the ancient church that Peter dictated his experiences, his encounters, his journey with Jesus, and John Mark served as his scribe, and he wrote it down, and they began to distribute it amongst the churches. If you read the Gospel of Mark in comparison to the other Gospels, what you're going to find is that Mark reads like a fast-paced action movie. Okay, it's like they're constantly on the go. There's something constantly happening. The story's always advancing rapidly. In fact, in Mark's gospel, you don't see any kind of genealogy like where did Jesus come from? You don't see any kind of birth narrative, no miraculous stories with shepherds and angels and out in the fields in Bethlehem. You don't see any childhood experiences in Nazareth, any trip to the temple. You don't see the Sermon on the Mount and you see very few parables that are actually recorded. 
important. Because Mark's concerned with showing us the character of Jesus. What G- who Jesus was and what Jesus did. Not necessarily what he taught. Not necessarily his background. But this is who he is. It's like the Cliff Notes version of a movie script that just is, oh, there's explosions everywhere. All right? There's always something happening in Mark's gospel. So it was written by John Mark. It reads, it's written like a fast-paced novel. And it's written to Roman Christians who were suffering under the persecution of the Roman Empire. Particularly by a man by the name of Nero, who was just, just really sick dude. All right? He was, if you go Google him today, all right? You're not going to like what you find. Okay? He was a very sick individual, somewhere on the scale of mental illness more than likely, as most historians and counselors have looked at some of the things that he did. Right? He, he lit his garden parties with Christians covered in tar. He fed them to wild beasts in the Colosseum. So the church is experiencing intense persecution under the Roman oppression. And as one commentator said, Mark recorded in rapid-fire succession specific events from the life and ministry of Jesus to prove to his Roman audience that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who served, suffered, died, and rose victorious over the grave so that they would have hope in the midst of their affliction and their distress at the hands of the Roman government. Now there's two major sections in the Gospel of Mark. The first section deals with the identity of Jesus. Who is he? In fact, it climaxes in Mark chapter 8 and verse 30 whenever Peter declares, you are the Christ. In fact, halfway between chapter 1 and chapter 8 verse 30, you find the story of Jesus stilling the storm. And after he stills the storm, in chapter 4, the disciples who are with him, they are taken aback in great fear. They're disturbed to their very core of their being. And they ask this question in Mark 4.41, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey Him? In other words, who can control the natural order? Who has power over that? Who is Jesus? The second half of Mark's Gospel is after Peter makes that confession, Jesus says, Here's the kind of Messiah, the kind of Christ I would be. One who would be betrayed, one who would suffer, one who would die. And if you want to follow me, here's what it looks like. You take up your cross, you deny yourself, and you put your feet on the path of discipleship. So who is Jesus? He's the Messiah. What kind of Messiah is He? One who would suffer and die. What does it look like to follow Him? I come after Him and die to myself. That's the big outline of Mark's Gospel. All right? So that's where we're headed over the course of the next uh, multiple months together as we explore it. But why do we need this right now? Why do we need Mark right now in our church, in our lives, and in this particular culture? Now, forgive me if you've heard me use this illustration before, but I'll use it again because I think it's a good one. In 1972, a man by the name of Ira Levin wrote a novel entitled Stepford Wives. Some of you may have read the book or seen the movies because it was subsequently produced into two full-length feature movies, one in 1975 and then a reboot in 2004. But the basic plot line of the book and both the movies is this, that the men of Stepford, Connecticut decide that they're, they're going to replace their wives with robots. It's a sci-fi kind of deal, right? They're going to replace their wives with robots. 
And the robots they replaced their wives with always looked right, always dressed right, always cooked right, and always complied with their husband's every single wish. Some of you men better watch it, right? Because you're starting to think, ah, that might be probably kind of cool. <laughs> right? You're going to get the elbow here in a second. But listen, they, they, they never challenged their husbands. They never contradicted their husbands. They never, they never, they never, will, that, they never a will that was bent in the opposite direction of their husbands. They were always subservient. They were always compliant. They were always like, yes, sir, please, may I have another? Okay, can we, whatever you need, your wish is my command. So they replaced their wives with these kinds of robots. And now while these men may have had everything they'd ever dreamed of, let me tell you what they didn't have. They didn't have a real relationship with a real person. You know why? Because their wives couldn't contradict them. Their wives couldn't challenge them. Their wives couldn't think things differently than they thought. And listen, we live in a culture, in an era of human history, in which there are many in modern America who have a piecemeal Stepford vision of Jesus. A Jesus who always thinks what they think. A Jesus who always celebrates what they celebrate. A Jesus who always rubber stamps what they desire. A Jesus who always affirms whatever they would affirm. A Jesus who always... And always does those things and never contradicts them, never challenges them, never pushes them, never says anything contrary to their will or their desires. And this Jesus, this step for Jesus, he will never change you because he can't challenge you. He will never change you because he can't contradict you. And Mark, perhaps more than any other gospel writer, wants to show to us the real Jesus wants to record the real Jesus, who He is, and then answer the question, how ought we to respond to Him? And in this introduction to His Gospel account, that's the two things I want us to look at this morning. Who is this Jesus, and how ought we respond to Him? Okay? First thing, who is Jesus? Mark tells us two things right out of the gate. He asserts two things about Jesus in verse 1. He says these two things. First, Jesus is the true Son. Jesus is the true Son of God. See, in verse 1, Mark asserts the sonship of Jesus. He said, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He just blanketly asserts this, that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. And then in verse 11, Mark supports his assertion with this baptism narrative. Right, Jesus goes out to meet John in the wilderness and John baptizes them as Jesus goes beneath the waters and is raised again. The Spirit of God descends upon Him like a dove and the Father announces from heaven, what? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. He asserts it in verse 1, Mark does. Remember, he's recording this stuff. He's piecing it together, editing it in such a way as to make an assertion and then support that assertion. Jesus is the Son of God. The Father declares it, and then the Son demonstrates it in verses 12 and 13. What do you find there? You find Jesus immediately being driven out into the wilderness following His baptism, where He is tempted. And the other, the other all, Mark is so, so abbreviated, right? 
He just wants to get through it, right? Just to show you, Jesus went out in the wilderness. The other authors of the Gospels that record the temptation narratives talk about the t- types of temptations he experienced, right? To circumvent God's, the Father's direction for his life. He could have all the power and all the glory now. Satan comes to him and tempts him in those ways. And Jesus resists at every turn. Unlike the first Son of God that we find in Genesis who when tempted in a lush garden with everything he could want other than one thing that God had put out of bounds, takes the one thing that God puts out of bounds and puts it in his mouth. Yet Jesus here in the wilderness, in a place of desolation, submits to the Father's will, shows himself to be the true Son, demonstrates it. Mark asserts it in verse 1. The Father declares it in verse 11. Jesus demonstrates it in verses 12 and 13 that He is the true Son of God. The second thing Mark asserts about Jesus in verse 1 is this. Not only is He the true Son, but He's also the Creator King. The Creator King. In verse 1, Jesus, or Mark says that Jesus is the Christ. Now, some of you might be looking at Jesus Christ and you think those things are synonymous, right? Or like, G, like Christ is his last name, like Collins is my last name. That's not really how this works, okay? Jesus was his name, Christ was a title or a, an office that he held. In fact, the word Christ literally means this, it means anointed one. And it's roughly equivalent to the Hebrew term Messiah that you see in the Old Testament, In the Old Testament, the Messiah would be the king who would come, that would conquer the enemies of God, that would serve the people of God, that would deliver and save the people of God. And so you see in the Old Testament, this Messiah was waited for, long awaited. And in fact, Mark, in verses 2 and 3, he grabs quotations from Isaiah and Malachi and he pieces them together, attributes them to Isaiah because that's where the bulk of the quotation comes from. And he says this. He says, As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, Behold my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. It's a collection of quotes. Isaiah 40, Malachi 3. Listen to what it says in those two verses. A voice, Isaiah 40, cries in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. All caps, L-O-R-D. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Malachi 3, Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to His temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi speaks of the Lord showing up in the temple. In the place where God's presence would dwell. Isaiah speaks of a forerunner of the Lord who would come and make his path straight. And Mark takes those verses from the Old Testament, applies them to John the Baptist and to Jesus. That John is the forerunner who would be a voice crying in the wilderness and Jesus is the Lord who would show up in the temple. And whenever he speaks of the Lord in Malachi and in Isaiah, he says, capital L-O-R-D. You know what that means when you see that little... That, that in your English translation, it's the Hebrew word Yahweh, which was the covenant name of God in the Old Testament that Jews dared not take on their lips and often did not even write, or at least they didn't write it with all of its vowels. They just wrote the consonants because they couldn't write the whole thing because they so revered the name of God because He was their covenant God, the Creator God, their King 
the one to whom they were in submission. They were his people. They were his people. He was their God. He led them. He ruled them. He served them. And Mark is saying that God has shown up in Jesus Christ. The creator king of all the universe has come to be incarnate in the person of Jesus. That's why in verse 15, whenever Jesus shows up to inaugurate his public ministry, he says, the kingdom of God is at what? Hand. It's near. You can touch it. You can see it. Why? Because the king is standing in your midst. Mark says Jesus is the true son. Jesus is the creator king. So you're like, oh, wow, that's great. How, what does that mean for me? Let me tell you what it means for you. Listen, in the Bible, whenever you, if, if you see Jesus is the true son, you see he's the creator king. In the Bible, when people came to see the real Jesus, right, they didn't walk away going, preacher, that was such a nice message this morning. So encouraged. When they came to see the real Jesus, they walked away with one of three reactions. Either they walked away with great sadness, like the rich young ruler, because he refused to give up control of his life and of his possessions and of his assets. Or they walked away with deep-seated anger, like the Pharisees, because they refused to give up their religious authority and power and submit to this king. Or they walked away with great joy like Mary who shattered a jar of perfume on Jesus' feet and wiped it up with her hair because she had experienced the grace and forgiveness of God. You didn't walk away from the real Jesus with indifference. You didn't walk away with the real Jesus with some kind of pie-in-the-sky kind of Pollyanna feeling. You walked away with either sadness, anger, or joy. And my hope for you this morning is that you walk away with neither of those two former, but with the latter. But the only way to do that, and Mark tells us this, is to give up on yourself. Now listen, i got to do a little work here, because whenever you hear those words, they don't fall very warmly on you. <laughs> right? You're not like, yes! That's the thing I was waiting to hear today. Give up on myself. Right? And the reason, listen, this is so unpalatable to us that we, it's almost like something we just want to spit out of our mouth is because we live in an era and a culture in human history, an era of excessive self-reliance, an era of excessive self-confidence where we are told and taught over and over that you can do anything you want to do if you just put your mind to it and you do it long enough and you do it hard enough that you can realize the innate powers at work within you, realize your full potential, and show everyone how special you are. You're God's gift to the world. Listen, that message shows up in the mantra of our culture. Some of you might remember this from years ago. Okay, the mantra of our culture is I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. Hmm. The theme song of our culture, you might remember this from a, not so long ago, from the movie Shrek. I heard it on the radio the other day. Right? Hey now, you're an all-star. Get your game on. Go play. Hey now, you're a rock star. Get your show on. Get paid. All that glitters is gold. Only shooting stars break the mold. 
That's the theme song for our culture. In a self-reliant and self-confident culture, everyone who works hard enough is an all-star, rock star, or shooting star who can do anything. And this message is constantly reinforced. Listen, from our youngest of ages, a couple of kids' movies. I saw a few years, that's the, the, just the water I swim in, right? Kids' movies, right? That I saw a few years ago with my kids. Turbo, it's the story of a little snail who wins the Indy 500, Or planes, the story of a rusty crop duster who wins the wings around the world competition against all these sleek racing planes. If you just train long enough, if you just work hard enough, right, that message is reinforced. You can do anything that you set your mind to if you just work hard enough. In fact, that message is so reinforced in our culture that it tells someone they can't do something. Right, to look at me and say, you can't play defensive line in the NFL. Now, I saw a guy last night who could have. <laughs> he was like 6'8", probably 360, just jacked. Not me. I would get crushed like a twig. But to tell me you can't play defensive line in the NFL is oppressive. It's abusive to tell someone they don't have the competencies or capacities to do something. Right? Listen, this is how... Side note, this is how you got so many people on American Idol who thought they could sing. No one ever loved them enough to tell them they couldn't. (laughs) And so they just all their lives thought they could. This is one self-help author, Wayne Dyer, said it this way. He said, we should all be raised by parents like Mary, who really believed that her son was God incarnate. In other words, you should be raised by parents who believe you're God's gift to the world. That is the water you and I swim in every single day. A message that's being reinforced over and over and over again. And in this culture with its excessive emphasis on self-confidence, its excessive emphasis on self-reliance and depending upon your abilities, right? Mark says, you've got to give up on yourself. Now, before I tell you what I mean by that, let me tell you what I don't mean by that. I don't mean that as a Christian that you are become one of those miserable, self-loathing people who just hate yourself. It's not what we're talking about. It also means that you shouldn't have any goals, or it doesn't mean that you shouldn't have any goals, passions, or pursuits in life. It's not what it means either. It also doesn't mean that you should give up on the hope that your life will ever change, ever grow, ever get any different, be any different, get any better. It's not what we're saying. What we're saying is this, is that if you're going to meet the real Jesus and respond to him in a way that brings about everlasting, deep joy in your life, then you've got to reach the end of yourself. You've got to reach the end of yourself. Listen, in verse 4, listen, we read this, that John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, when Mark tells us that John was in the wilderness baptizing and preaching and that people were flocking to him, coming to him in the wilderness to hear his message and to be baptized, we have to see, listen, this fits into the pattern of the biblical narrative where God has a tendency to show up and meet people in the wilderness. In the Moses met him in the wilderness at the burning bush. Jacob meets him in the wilderness as he wrestles with him and has his hip broken, right? Or out of socket and he limps for the rest of his life. Israel meets him there in the wilderness as she is led with fire and clouds and provided for with manna and water from the rock. God has a tendency to meet people in the wilderness. It's a pattern throughout the Bible. 
And listen, the word wilderness in this translation, in my translation, your translation might word it differently, and there are probably better translations than mine at this point. Because where mine says wilderness, what it evokes for us in North America is like a forest, right? A place teeming with life. You got birds and you got deer. Some of you are really excited about that right now as you get ready for deer season, right? You got all kinds of stuff. Life. You, you find a little patch where sun kind of filters through the canopy above and you can plant stuff. There's fertile soil that you can grow things in. Right? So you can sustain life. You can support life. You can hunt and you can gather. You can grow. You can live. And you can essentially flourish in the forest. But the wilderness in the Bible is a place that can't sustain life. In fact, the word wilderness in the Bible might be better translated desert. It's a desolate place. It's a place of thorns where nothing grows. It's a place of thirst where there is no water. It's a place of loneliness where you feel abandoned, where you feel isolated, where you feel alone because it cannot support a city. It cannot support a community of people living there. The wilderness is a place where you cannot stay alive unless God intervenes. That's what the wilderness is in the Bible. And so when people come out to meet John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus in the wilderness, they're coming to a place where no one can survive without the provision of God. And listen, anyone who's ever met the real Jesus, I hadn't met him in the forest. I met him in the wilderness. When they've reached the end of themselves. When they've reached the end of their resources. Listen, when all the bread that they had turned moldy, when all the water they thought they had, it dried up. When all your wells run dry and all your bread goes moldy, in those wilderness experiences, what you learn, that whatever you were looking to and looking to for satisfaction in life, whatever you were looking to to fill you, whatever you were looking to to nourish you, whatever you were looking to to sustain you, when it goes away or you begin to realize it's inadequate to do what you're looking to it to do in your life, you begin to realize God's not just an accessory like a purse. He's the essence of my life. He's the foundation of my life. I can't live without Him. And you only recognize that when you reach the end of yourself. C.S. Lewis said it brilliantly. Listen to how he said it. He said, most people, if they really knew how to look into their own hearts, they would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. Something you cannot find. There are all sorts of things in the world that offer to give it to you. But they never keep their promise. The longings that arise in us when we first fall in love you remember that? Or first think of some foreign country to which we want to travel. And nowadays we can just look it up on the internet and see all the pictures and think about all the experiences we would have there. Or first take up some new subject that intrigues us and we begin to give ourselves to study and understanding. It excites us. Those longings that we find rising within us he says, no marriage, no travel, no learning can ever really satisfy. He says, I'm not speaking about what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or trips, right, that just didn't live up to their expectations. I'm talking about the best possible ones. There are always something that we grasp at in the first moment of longing that fades away in the reality. The spouse may be a great spouse. The scenery has been phenomenal. 
it has turned out to be a really great job that we have taken that we were excited about. But what we were really looking for has evaded us even in the best of those experiences. Because there's nothing in this world that can sustain and satisfy. Because eventually it will turn moldy. Eventually the water will dry up. And Lewis says, what you were looking for was not found in those things because it cannot be found in those things. It can only be found in a God who's able to sustain you. So if you're going to meet the real Jesus, you've got to meet him in the wilderness. You've got to reach the end of yourself. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever done that? Have you ever been brought to the end of yourself? I've experienced it twice in my life. Well, probably more times, but two I'll tell you about anyway. One, when God saved me as a porn-addicted teenager. I had nothing to bring to the table. But brokenness and pain and heartache. The second time was whenever I, as a parent, experienced the birth of my daughter. And I realized just how helpless I was to fix her. Every surgery that she went through with neurosurgeons, plastic surgeons, maxillofacial surgeons, eye surgeons, all, all of that handing her over into the arms of an anesthesiologist who's going to take her into the operating room and put her under and open her up. I realized just how helpless I was. And in that moment, I knew I was not sufficient. And even that what I was looking to in her was not sufficient. To satisfy me, but I needed someone outside of this world to comfort me, to give me peace, to wrap his, this, some of you may think as men, sounds a little feminine, but to wrap his arms around me and hold me in the midst of my heartache. Have you ever reached the end of yourself? Because if you have not, listen, you have not met the real Jesus. Second thing, that I mean by giving up on yourself is this, is you've got to put down your washcloth. What in the world do you mean by that? Listen, when people came out in the wilderness to be baptized by John, in ancient Judaism, there was all kinds of washings, all kinds of ceremonial washings and cleansings that Jews would go through. They would wash their hands. They would wash their feet. In fact, when Gentiles came into the temple or the court of the Gentiles, whenever they were converted into, became proselytized into Judaism, they went through whole body immersions. But you know what? All those washings in ancient Judaism shared in common, they were all done to yourself, by yourself. This is the first time in the Bible that you see whenever they go out to be baptized that someone else has to cleanse them. Someone else has to wash them. They couldn't cleanse themselves any longer because John says, I'm going to baptize you with a baptism of repentance and there's one who's coming after me whose sandals I'm worthy, unworthy to untie. And he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And what you see in that is, listen, they could not cleanse themselves any longer. And listen, in every church, there is a layer of people who perhaps have reached the end of themselves and so they say, listen, I've got to clean up my act. I've got to try harder. I've got to do better. I've got to, I've got to make this thing work. Right? 
God's given me a second chance or a third chance or a fourth or a fifth, and I've got to do it now. And so they take out their washcloth or their loofah and they squirt their body wash or they take their bar of caress or dove or whatever they've got and they're trying to scrub and make themselves clean. Listen, but I'm telling you, if you've never put down your washcloth, you've never met the real Jesus. A guy by the name, <laughs> a guy by the name of, um, where, where is it? I have it here somewhere. Nathan Cole. In the 1740s, in a journal entry, after listening to a sermon by, the name, by a man named George Whitfield, he wrote these words. He said, my hearing him preach gave me a heart wound. He said, by God's grace, my old foundation was broken up and I saw that my righteousness could not save me. In other words, there was no amount of soap that I could use to make myself clean. I need someone else to cleanse me. I need someone else to wash me. I need someone else to purify me. No amount of Purell will work. It won't get the job done. And to know the real Jesus, what you have to do is give up on your own self-salvation project. Now listen, some of us are trying to make ourselves righteous in all kinds of ways. Some of us might be by all our good deeds that we do. Like last night, man, when Celebrate Fate was over, I helped that little old lady across the street in the dark. I'm a good person. Look at me, God. I've raised self-aware, self-adjusted children who are successful in life. And we're holding up our righteousness. Look at all the money in my account that I've inherited or earned and managed so well. I know what I'm doing. And we're holding up our righteousness. Look how successful I've been in my vocation. And we're holding up our righteousness. And just so you think, I'm not saying you're the only one who does that. Listen, I want you to know as a preacher, I've done it too. And listen, I reached the end of myself again. Again. And had to lay down my washcloth of pastoral performance in 2016. Because in 2016, what I found myself as was a, what I considered to be a failing pastor of a church that was in a death spiral. And it was this one. As we saw it dwindle down to about 25 adults and a handful of kids running around this building on Sunday mornings. And through that process, I realized that I am not sufficient for this task. And what I've been trying to do was hold up my righteousness to God and say, God, look how good I've been as a pastor. Look how good I've been at serving your people. Look at how good I've been or how poor I've been at preaching. But I've tried to be faithful to the Word. Right? Look at all these things, God, all the sacrifices that I've made. And God, in His grace, was giving me a heart wound. And once again, made me realize there is no amount of performance I can hold up to him to make myself acceptable in his sight. I needed someone else to cleanse me. I needed someone else to purify me. And listen, I want you to know something, church. That is an ongoing process in your life. In fact, when Jesus says in verse 15, He says, the gospel of God, He announces that the kingdom of God is at hand. What does He say? Repent. 
And that word repent in the Greek language, some of you get a little geeked out right now, because I do. Right, but that word repent in the Greek, Greek language is a present active verb. You know what that means? For those of you who are not English majors, what that means is this. It means that it, it describes an ongoing, a continuous action in your life. So he's not saying you repent one time at the beginning of your Christian life and then you're good, right? You lay down your own righteousness one time at the beginning of your Christian life and then you're good. No, he's saying there's an ongoing recognition that I can bring nothing and he brings everything and that's what makes me clean. And you know what that does for you? That takes you off of that hamster wheel of performance in the Christian life. which some of you may have been running all of your lives. Now, you ready to give up on yourself? The last thing that he says here, to have that kind of joy in walking away is this. Not only do you have to give up on yourself, but you have to believe that the rule of Jesus in your life is good news. It's good news. And that's hard for us as Americans. We don't want anybody else telling us what to do. But if you're going to have joy, listen, you've got to believe that His rule in your life is good news. In verse 2 and 3, when we read those quotations from the Old Testament, I promise this point's not going to be as long as that last one. Um, but when we read those quotations from the Old Testament, listen, He says, prepare the way of the Lord. Make His path straight. See, in the ancient world, anytime you built a road, they didn't have bobcats. They didn't have bulldozers. They didn't have big, heavy machinery. They didn't have modern engineering techniques either. And so when you came to a big rock outcropping, what'd you do? You didn't tunnel through it. You went around it, right? Or whenever you came to a canyon or a valley, what'd you do? You didn't build a bridge over it, but you made a switchback going back and forth down it and back up it. That's how you built roads in the ancient world. But whenever a king was to visit Oftentimes they would try to straighten out those roads to honor that king who was coming to make his path straight. And so what they would do is they would leverage much slave labor in order to tear down the rock outcroppings, in order to build up the canyons and to make the road as level and as straight as possible with the recognition that a dignitary was coming to visit and his, to honor him. We want to make the road, we don't make it hard for him to get here. And listen, when many people think about submitting to Jesus' rule in their life, they think about oppression, they think about slavery, they think about someone who is dictating to them the terms. And listen, that would make sense if he was the kind of king that you're accustomed to, and that you think of. But he's not, church. Because in fact, this word way in Mark's gospel, oftentimes when it shows up elsewhere, when they're always on the way somewhere in Mark's gospel. They were on the way here and Jesus said this. They were on the way here and they did this. They were on the way here, right? But that, that's a theme that shows up in Mark's gospel and over and over again, the disciples are always on the way somewhere with Jesus. You know ultimately where Jesus is on the way to? The cross. He's on his way to Jerusalem to give his life in our place. See, when Jesus comes into the world as the creator king, he doesn't go looking, he's not on the way to the throne. 
in Jerusalem. He's on the way to the cross in Jerusalem where He would take upon Himself our sin. He would die in our place. He would identify with our condition. He came to be not ascended to the throne in Jerusalem, but affixed to a cross in Jerusalem. This is the reason that He's come. So listen, His rule in your life is not slavery. It is freedom from the slavery that you're in now to all your other little kings that you're submitting to and serving. And they, listen, the only way his rule will be good news to you if you realize that that's the kind of king that he is. Edward Chilito, I'll close with this poem. He wrote a poem called Jesus of the Scars. He said, the other gods were strong, but thou was weak. They rode, but you did stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Jesus is the only God who was wounded for you. Because of that, His reign is not oppressive, but it's free. Listen, if you will come to the end of yourself, if you will lay down your washcloth and stop trying to cleanse yourself and be cleansed by another, by the one who lived and died in your place and submit to his gracious rule. Then listen, you don't have to walk away sad. You don't have to walk away angry. You can walk away with more joy than your heart can contain. And that's my hope for you. Let's pray together. Father, we come today thanking you for your word, thanking you for your son, thanking you for your spirit, Thanking for the fact that you have not left us to wander aimlessly and blindly through this life and through this world, but you've given us clarity. That you've not left us to our own devices to determine what is good, but you've sent us a king to rule. But not the kind of king that we would be accustomed to, but the kind of king who humbled himself even to the point of death, death on a cross so that we could trust that His rule in our life is not oppressive, but it's freeing. Father, I pray for those in the room this morning who have never given up on themselves. That they have bought into this message in our culture that's constantly being reinforced of self-reliance, self-exaltation, self-confidence, that they're good enough, smart enough, and they can accomplish anything. Father, I pray that if they've never met you in the wilderness, they would do so this week. God, and that is a bold prayer to pray. And perhaps some of them even wish I would not pray that prayer for them, but I do. Because only in the wilderness will they meet the real, the real true son, the real creator, true king. They would reach the end of themselves. They would lay aside their washcloths they'd be cleansed by Jesus and they would rise to submit to His rule in their lives. But I pray as we continue our way through Mark's gospel account that you would continue to teach us and reveal to us more clearly than ever before who Jesus is and how we ought to respond. We pray it in His name.